Hey friends, great to be with you all as we get our new season started. Now, I was away for a wedding on the West Coast last weekend. It's the first time I've missed a Vision Sunday in 38 years. <laughs> but from everything I've seen and heard, it was a great weekend across all of our campuses. And Pastor John shared with me how, how much joy he found in speaking directly to our online community last Sunday. What a great time he had with those of you who joined the online vision gathering. So I'm as excited as I've been in a long time about our vision and our future. So I'm happy to kind of wrap up Vision Week today and launch our fall series. So let's get started with a question. What does your birth story reveal about you? What does your birth story reveal about you? Psychologists tell us that the circumstances and narratives surrounding our entrance into the world can have a profound effect on us. For instance, if, if, your, if your parents talked about your birth as a surprise or an accident or a joy or a gift, those words have likely shaped the way you think about yourself. If you were born under difficult circumstances, if there was danger or hardship involved with your entry into the world, you might see yourself as a fighter or a survivor. My mother always talked about the fact that I was born wide-eyed and refused to sleep as a newborn, as if I didn't want to miss anything. And wouldn't you know, I'm still a lousy sleeper, and I've had a lifelong case of FOMO, a fear of missing out. Uh, of course, the other narrative around my birth is that I was born on Halloween, and, and I'm still not sure what to make of that. But even those who don't know their birth stories can find themselves shaped by, by the lack of information about their beginnings. I was talking with a friend recently about her parents. Her mother proudly came from a large extended family that traced their ancestry all the way back to the earliest settlers in New England. Her father, on the other hand, never quite got over the fact that he was adopted as an 18-month-old and, and knew virtually nothing of his birth parents. And even into his 70s, he was still describing himself as the illegitimate son of a Boston maid. At the same time, we know that, that many people who've grown up in adopt, adoptive homes have, have found great value and comfort in the fact that they were chosen and loved by someone who didn't have to. So the point I'm trying to get at is that the stories and circumstances surrounding your entrance into the world can have a profound effect on your character and on the trajectory of your life. And that's never been more true than it was for a man named Moses, whose birth story not only had a profound effect on his life, but on the lives of everyone around him. And what makes it all the more interesting is that the same thing can be true of your life, too. Uh, today, we're beginning an eight-week series entitled Exodus, Scenes from a With God Life. As we shared last week, our ministry theme for this year here at Grace is disciple-making, which we're describing as life with God, life with others for the good of the world. 
Life with God is all about our personal spiritual growth and formation. Practices like prayer and Bible reading and fasting. Life with others is all about our relationships, our family, our friendship circles, our group life, our church. And the good of the world is all about the ways we serve the church and the world in Jesus' name. We're calling it the journey of discipleship. And you can learn more about it at grace.org slash the journey. So to help us understand, to discover what that journey looks like, we're going to follow the journey of a man named Moses, whose story is told in a book of the Bible we call Exodus. We're going to look at eight scenes from his life, scenes that have parallels in our own lives and that illustrate what a with-God life looks and feels like. We've even created a with-God worksheet that allows you to literally fill in the blanks with words or scenes from your journey with God. So you, you can print that worksheet at home or you can pick one up any Sunday to help you kind of personalize this series. Uh, you're even allowed to doodle on it as you listen to this message. Uh, today we're going to discover that the discipleship journey begins before we're even aware of it. So let's turn to the first two chapters of the book of Exodus. Uh, we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 1, in part because it's less familiar, but also because it's so important to Moses' story and ours. Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Now, Exodus is the second book in what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, they're sometimes called the books of Moses, since we believe them to be drawn from the life and teaching of Moses. Most scholars agree that these books were compiled over time by a variety of authors and editors. The title Exodus is from the Greek word meaning the road out. It describes the physical and spiritual journey of God's people out of slavery, through the wilderness, to the threshold of the promised land. And as we follow Moses and his people on that trek, we're going to learn some things about our own spiritual journeys as well. But here's the interesting thing about the way this book begins. In the original Hebrew, it begins with the word and. Now, back in middle school, we learned that you should never begin a sentence with the word and, let alone a whole book. Well, it may be bad grammar, but it's great storytelling. Because by beginning with that word, and, the author is telling us that we're entering into a story that's already underway. And the story that's underway is the story of the human race, which began beautifully with the creation of the first man and woman, but quickly unraveled 
when they turned away from their Creator, bringing disaster on themselves and the world God had given them. But thankfully, the story didn't end there. God set in motion a plan to redeem humanity and restore the earth, a plan that began with a man named Abraham, whose descendants would come to be known as the nation of Israel, and through whom God would bless and save the whole world. That's why the writer names Abraham's descendants here, to make sure we understand this is part of the same story. When famine struck their land, the people made their way to Egypt, where it just so happened that one of Abraham's descendants, a man named Joseph, was in charge of distributing the food. And now we're told that there were 70 people in the clan when they made their way to Egypt. Whether we're to understand 70 as a literal or a figurative number, we're not really sure. Numbers are often used symbolically in the scripture. The point is, it was a small group of people when they first went to Egypt. But time passed. Joseph and succeeding generations passed away. And eventually, that small clan of 70 or so came to number tens and even hundreds of thousands of people. The writer tells us, But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Now, that sounds like a good thing, right? God's chosen people are being fruitful and multiplying, just like they were supposed to do. What it didn't feel so good to the Egyptians. Let's keep reading. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. Now, little side historical note here. Uh, the Bible is the only historical account we have of the nation of Israel being enslaved in Egypt. However, we do have historical accounts of Semitic people like the Israelites emigrating to and living in Egypt. We do know that slave labor was a central feature of the Egyptian empire. We do know that Pithom and Ramses were real cities built and inhabited around the same time period. And we do have one archaeological record of Israelite engagement with Egypt found in the ancient stele of Merneptah. So, so, so most historians, even secular ones, will affirm the historicity of Israel's bondage and exodus from Egypt, even if they don't accept all the stories we find in Exodus. But what the biblical record makes clear is that the Israelites were suffering in Egypt. They were enslaved, oppressed, and in danger of being wiped out. Let's keep reading. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God 
and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. So they let the boys live. Now, you got to love Shipra and Pua, right? I mean, these were brave women risking their lives to save these babies. A couple of midwives, but they played an important part in this unfolding story. Because you could make the case that if they hadn't defied Pharaoh's orders, a baby named Moses, who we'll meet in a minute, might never have been delivered safely into the world. But before we get to Moses, there's one more point we need to make. So let's, let's finish out chapter 1. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now, in case you hadn't noticed... This is the first time we have any evidence that God is part of this story. It's the first time he's mentioned here. For generations, the people have been in bondage in Egypt with no record of any word or activity from God. But suddenly, after all these years and generations, we find that, that the God of creation, who made humankind in his image, who called Abraham to be the father of a great nation, who brought Joseph to Egypt and rescued his people from famine, that God was still present, still active, and preparing to do something new. The story was still being told. So then and only then does Moses finally appear. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Now, here's the point I'm trying to make in all of this, a point I believe the biblical writer is making by beginning the book this way. Like Moses, we are all born into a story that's already underway. Like Moses, we are all born into a story that is already underway. None of us is born in a vacuum. There are people who have gone before us, events happening around us that are shaping our lives from the moment we're conceived, for good and for evil. Moses was born to a people who'd, who'd been chosen for great things, but also a people who were oppressed and under attack. There were people who were out to get him, Pharaoh and his soldiers, and there were people who were out to save him, the Hebrew midwives and, and his godly parents. Most importantly, God was there, watching and working. Now, his presence may not have been as obvious as at other times, but, but, but when the time was right, God intervened to save his people and accomplish his purposes. The same is true for us. We're all born into a story already underway. We all have ancestors, known or unknown, illustrious or illegitimate, godly or not. Uh, we were all born into you, a unique set of circumstances, prosperous or, or perilous, comfortable or difficult. Uh, things were already happening when we made our entrance into the world. 
Have you ever gone online and, and looked up the, the newspaper from the day you were born? Just a heads up, you didn't make the front page. <laughs> but that day, you became part of the story. People took note of it, and so did God. And, and that's true for all the beginnings in our lives. A new job a new school, a new neighborhood, a new church. Wherever you show up and whenever you show up, God's already there. He's already at work. And he's ready to meet you there in that place with those people to continue telling his story and yours. I, I remember my first Sunday at Grace Chapel 20 plus years ago. I, I stepped into the sanctuary just before the service started, and the place burst into applause. I hadn't even done anything yet. I couldn't have told you where the bathrooms were, let alone what God had in mind for the years to come. But there was this collective sense that God was already at work, that he'd been preparing all of us for something important and good. And here we are today. Vision Week 2022, a new year, a fresh start. Now, now, to be honest with you, there have been times the past couple of years when, when I've wondered where God was and what he was up to. There have been some rough years. But here we are. And here you are. And we're sensing that, that God is on the move again. Uh, maybe you're new to grace. Maybe you've been here for years or even decades. However new or old it feels, God is here. A story's being told, and he has a part for you to play in it. He has people and experiences already lined up to be part of the journey. And if you still don't believe that, then, then follow me into chapter 2. And, and we'll move a, a little more quickly here. When his mother saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. When she saw that he was a fine child. Now, what does that mean? That he was a Gerber baby, Instagram-worthy? Well, that Hebrew word translated fine comes from the same word used back in Genesis 1, where we're told that everything God made was good, that the human beings God made were very good. In other words, Moses' mother saw something good, something worthy in her child, something special. And she realized she, she had to do everything in her power to protect him. But the truth is, we're all fine children. Now, I haven't seen your baby pictures, but you came into the world bearing the image of God, uniquely designed to make his glory and goodness known in the world. In Psalm 139, David, 
marvels at God's knowledge of and attentiveness to him before he even made his entrance into the world. Listen to a few of these words. For you created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I know that full well. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now, that doesn't mean we all come into the world perfect. The truth is, we all come into the world imperfectly, flawed and fallen in all kinds of ways. But we come into the world on purpose, with a part to play in the human story. And God begins working with us, even in the womb, to form and fashion us for life with him and with others, for the good of whatever world we're about to be born into. So Moses' mother recognizes this about her child. So when his cries get too loud to be hidden anymore, she she puts them in a basket and places them in the river. Now, that's not as random or reckless as it sounds. It was sort of the ancient equivalent of leaving a baby in front of a hospital or at the door of a firehouse. It's likely she chose the spot very intentionally because she posted Moses' sister there to make sure her plan worked. Sure enough, one of Pharaoh's daughters was bathing in that very spot, found the baby in a basket, and decided to raise the child as her own. But only after arranging for Moses' natural mother to nurse and raise him in his early years. Sounds like God is at work here, behind the scenes. So Moses ends up being raised in two worlds. As a Hebrew, hearing the songs and stories of his people in those early formative years, and then as an Egyptian, educated in the ways and politics of the most powerful nation on earth. And in similar ways, each of us are shaped by our our families of origin, by the household we grew up in and the schools we attended. We're shaped by our ethnicity and and our cultural context. And, And maybe, like Moses, having to navigate multiple families and multiple cultures. But in the sovereignty of God, none of that is wasted. Even the most difficult and complicated backgrounds It can be used by God to shape us for the people and purposes we'll serve later in life. Uh, My father was raised during the Depression by his father after his mother abandoned the family. He went to something like 13 different schools, and, and he can't even count the number of apartments and rooms and boarding houses he lived in growing up. Well, is it any wonder that God led him to a career in social work, and in particular to serving young people at risk? God can work with anything and everything that happens to us. Uh, But it's not just uh, people and circumstances that shape us. It's our personality 
and our talents and our life experiences. Let's uh, fast forward a bit to Moses' young adult years, down in verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. So where would you put Moses on the Enneagram scale? Is he an eight, the challenger who is ready to fight for what they believe in? Or maybe a one, the perfectionist, wanting to put things right? We're getting a glimpse into Moses' personality here, his inner workings, the good and the bad of it. A bias for action, but, but a struggle with impulsivity. His leadership gifts are emerging, but, but they need to be refined. He wants to help, but he does a terrible thing and makes it worse for everyone. All of these are in play here. As God works with Moses, even with his darkest moments, forming him for his life's work. Moses will spend the next chapter of his life, 40 years worth, we're told, learning how to manage his emotions and his gifts, shepherding his father-in-law's flock through the wilderness, just as he'll be doing with the people of Israel in a chapter yet to be written. It's all part of the story, all part of the journey. And in similar ways, God is working with our personalities, our gifts and talents, our life experiences, good and bad, to form us for himself and fulfilling our unique purpose in this world. So here's what we're learning in these opening chapters of Exodus about Moses and ourselves and the journey of discipleship. From the beginning, God has been forming us for life with him and with others, for the good of the world around us. From the beginning, God has been forming us for life with him and with others, for the good of the world around us. And here's the crazy thing. Much of this work is happening before we're even aware of it. Moses had no idea that he was going to spend the final chapter of his life leading one of the most momentous journeys in human history. But from his earliest days, from his conception, to his birth, to his adoption, to his education, to his mistakes, to his work as a shepherd, God was working in and through all of it to form Moses for the unique part that he would play in the human story. And the same is true for you and me. If you'll take a look at that With God worksheet, uh, you'll find the image for this week's message in the lower left. It looks like a thumbprint with the words, I am with you. God's thumbprint is on your life. It's been there from the beginning. And we've left some blank spaces there so you can fill in with the words and dates and timeline and people and experiences from your own story. See, our vision for this series and for this year 
is to help each one of us become more aware of and more engaged with God's presence and activity in our lives. To discover where we are on that journey of discipleship and to follow Jesus into the next leg of that journey. There are a variety of ways we want to help you do that, but before I get to them, we thought it would be helpful to hear how this has all played out in the life of someone a little bit closer to our home, to our times. So we've asked Pastor Jeanette Yep to share a bit of her story with us. So let's watch this video, and then I'll come back and wrap things up. I'm a first-generation kid of of immigrant parents. My grandfather was uh, one of the first settlers here in Chinatown. He came at the end of the Qing Dynasty, old imperial China, in 1901. And he had a hand laundry where he he just cleaned shirts and uniforms of sailors and the shirts of business people and the like on the backside of Beacon Hill. When my dad was 16, he was sent back to China to marry my mother. They stayed married the entire time after that. I think when over 65 years or something of marriage. So here I am, native Bostonian, as all-American as hot dogs and the Red Sox. I was raised in a Christian family, so you know we grew up going to church, and I can't picture a time where uh, we didn't pray or read the Bible or things like that. So it's all been a part of my growing up. We started in Dorchester uh, in a triple-decker, and at that point, the demographics were wildly different. There were no Asians, in very few Asians in all of Boston. I'd come home, my mother would speak to me in Chinese. We used chopsticks, we would eat Chinese food. My friends had, you know, used forks and uh, were more Western. I wanted to be like them, so it was tough. I didn't like being Asian or Chinese. Um, and it took me a long time to come to peace to, with that because that difference was not a positive distinction for me. And a lot of my young adult life was trying to make sense of that cultural background and how God could use that for good and not for ill because it always felt not so good. Over time, I began to see his sovereign foundations in, in that being brought up biculturally. I think I have a sensitivity to other cultures because I had to. It was a survival thing here in, the, in, the, in this country, and I think it's helped me as I cross cultures now and listen and learn and, you know, just pick up vibes. And as I look back, I think of the privileges I've had with both the exposure to multiple cultures, to travel I've had to, I've had an experience, to, you know, gift of education and opportunities. And I've always felt like life is about stewarding those privileges and, um, and being responsible because I've received those gifts. I know they're gifts. So I ended up going to Taiwan for a year on a fellowship program and studying, uh, continuing studying Chinese language and culture. It's like a you know, one-year master's kind of thingy. And uh, while I was there, uh, folks started writing me and inviting me to consider joining InterVarsity staff. And then 30 years later, I was still working with students uh, with InterVarsity. And uh, through my time with Ivy, we started working with Asian American students who were like me, second generation people, parents who immigrated, 
but you feel caught between worlds. I think like Moses did, because he was, he was Hebrew, but he was Egyptian, and yet he was a blend of both. And I think a lot of us feel that same mix of cultures inside of us, and you don't know how to make sense of it. And Moses had to figure out what that was. Was he a Hebrew or was he an Egyptian? God didn't waste this kind of family background. And it took a while to make sense of it, to make peace. I mean, I've gone to counselors. I've had to spend time, you know, praying, lamenting. I've gone through depression. I've gone through a lot of things to um, help make sense of it. So it hasn't been like, oh, hey, I'm Chinese American. Can't wait. I think, again, because of being in between cultures, I think I understand kingdom citizenship in a whole different way. It's just not an academic thing for me. It's, it's meaningful. And I think it's given me a sensitivity to people from other cultures. And I notice folk who are left out. I notice folk who are on the margins. You know, there's, in a lot of the Bible, there's lots of stories of journey and pilgrimage. Um, and the final destination, right, is when we're reunited with God in, in a heavenly realm somewhere. In his, when his kingdom is established. And I think the journey that my folks were on and uh, to be, come to America, the whole thing, and their journey to kind of make it in this country and then to pass on opportunities to us. And I think this, there's a lot of places where um, it's a reminder that the final destination isn't what you have today, but still ahead. <laughs> and you're still taking steps towards what's ahead. I just am a firm believer that God doesn't make any mistakes, that He put us into our families and our homes, uh, families of origins, with all their strengths and weaknesses, uh, purposefully. It's, it's not a mistake that we're there. God loved you enough to bring you into your family, and let's think about what that means for you today and for your future. As you can tell from Jeanette's story, the journey of discipleship can be a long and winding road. It began early for Jeanette, in Chinatown, in a Christian home, in a fledgling immigrant church. There are a lot of things she had to work out and work through. A lot of people who came in and out of her life. But God was there through all of it, even when she wasn't aware of it. And God was using all of it to form Jeanette for a relationship with him, for deep relationships with the people around her, and for a unique contribution to the work of the kingdom. And at pivotal points along the way, Jeanette said yes to that work. Now, I don't know your birth story, but I know God was there watching and working. And he's still there right up to this very moment. And he has things he wants to do in you and with you and through you this year. So we've designed a couple of tools to help you figure out where you are on that journey and where the Lord wants to take you this year. The first is what we're calling the discipleship planning tool. It's a simple online survey that can help you discern the the practices and relationships and experiences God might be leading you into this year with God, with others, for the world. And, and we hope everyone will use this tool. Take it today, as soon as you get home, during halftime of the game, during your quiet time tomorrow. Whether you're new to the spiritual journey 
or you've been following Jesus for many, many years. If you'll invest just 10 or 15 minutes working with this tool, you'll receive a customized discipleship roadmap for the next three months and for the rest of the year. And once you've done that, you can take advantage of the GPS tool. GPS stands for Gifts, Passions, and Story. And again, it's a simple survey designed to help you identify the unique ways God has designed you to to serve the church and the world around you. And once you've done that, we have volunteer coaches and pastoral staff who would be happy to help you find a place to serve when you feel ready to do that. And you can find that tool at at grace.org slash volunteer. Well, a, a quick personal story as we finish up. I was having my devotions last week, and and the reading for the day was from 1 Samuel 12. It told the story of the prophet Samuel's farewell speech to the nation as he handed the reins of leadership over to King Saul. And the devotional writer offered this question for reflection. If you were to give a farewell speech to your friends and family, what would you say? Well, I thought about that as I, as I went for a run along the California coastline there. And, and here's what I came up with. Life with God through faith in Jesus Christ is the best possible life a person can ever experience. Not the easiest life, not, not the most comfortable life, but far and away the most meaningful most satisfying, most connected, and most exciting life a person could ever experience. And as I thought about those words, it struck me that, that they were almost exactly the same words I used nearly 40 years ago when I said farewell to a church youth group I'd been leading before going off to seminary. It's the message I've been devoted my entire life to. And I am as convinced of it today as I ever have been. Life with God through faith in Jesus Christ is the best possible life a person can ever experience. Now, this is not a farewell speech. This is a vision speech. This is the life that I and we are inviting you into this year. Because we believe that from the beginning, God has been forming you for life with him and with others for the good of the world around you. So here's my question for you on this Vision Sunday. Are you ready to say yes to that life? Are you ready to take your next step or your first step on the discipleship journey? If you're not that's okay. We invite you to hang around and listen in and see what it's all about. But if you are, then invite you, I invite you to join us this year to jump in and engage with the tools and resources we've made available as together we discover life with God for the good of the world. As always, if you want to reach out to me, if I can help in any way, just send me an email, brian with a y at grace.org. Let's pray for a moment. 
We thank you, Lord, for the knowledge that you have been with us and for us from our very earliest days, that you've never abandoned us or given up on us, and you never will. Thank you for leading each one of us to this time and this place. Forgive us, Lord, for losing sight of you sometimes and for mistakes we've made along the way. Help us this year to take whatever steps you're inviting us into as we discover all that you have in store for us and the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.